Our scripture this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Good morning. Good to see so many of you here this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It is good, uh, even in the middle of summer, uh, to be uh, with you. Uh, So thanks uh, for being here. Uh, We're in the middle of a series this summer on, um, I don't really know how to put it, I guess. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, But in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, he wrote to the Corinthians, and he said this, that we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within. And so that that phrase is really what we're kind of going after uh, this summer. Because for many of us, it's a great description of what we experience from day to day, isn't it? There are the outward afflictions of painful circumstances, and unfortunately sometimes even days like today bring these things out. But things like broken relationships and disappointments, financial hardships, death, whatever the case may be. And at the same time, often... There are the inner afflictions, anxiety and fear and depression and shame. And, and here's the thing that we've been saying that we're going to continue to say all summer long. The lesson is that Christianity doesn't spare a person from these experiences. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That, that Paul says that, that he had chosen this kind of life on purpose, in obedience to Christ. His Christianity, in other words, wasn't, a, wasn't the solution to suffering and stress. It was actually the occasion for it. Do you get that? I mean, it wasn't the solution to this kind of life he's describing. It actually was the occasion for it. Many of you know Elizabeth Elliot died this past Monday. And many of you are familiar with her story, probably. Uh, She and her husband Jim were missionaries in Ecuador in the 1950s. He famously was killed by the Indian tribe that they were ministering to. She was left there with a 10-month-old child to care for by herself. Now, here's the amazing thing away from family and friends, away from the support structure, you know, being here in America, all by herself in that faraway place, not only, as her story goes, did she choose to stay in Ecuador instead of coming home in her grief. But years later, a lot of people don't know, years later she went back to the same people who had killed her husband and spent two years in gospel ministry to them. Isn't that amazing? For her, her Christian commitments didn't spare her fightings without and fears within. In fact, they were the occasion for it. Now, here's the thing, okay? Uh, And i got to do this some this summer, so bear with me. So, just in thinking about that little thing, here's what I want to say to you. When Ashley calls you this summer to ask you to help pull off kids' worship and two services in the fall, guess what the right answer is? Whatever you need. Because I, here's the thing, we cannot 
we, I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out how to say this with the passion that I feel about it, but then not come across as angry, okay? So pray for me. We cannot take the city and do in this city what we had set out to do seven years ago if the thing we're most concerned about in the fall is what's going to disrupt our lunch plans. Right? You see, there's got to be something else that's calling us to something greater than to just worry about what happens you know, to the things that, are, that, that make my life you know, a little bit nicer than it maybe is from time to time. We've got to be way more concerned with what is needful for the kingdom to advance in our city than what might interfere uh, with our Sunday afternoons. We are not being faithful if we are not modeling sacrifice for you as pastors and staff and leaders and calling you to sacrifice. And listen, and we as a church are not being faithful if we run in the other direction when the chance to sacrifice finds us. We are not, and dads, this is true of us, right? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Christians throughout the centuries have run towards danger. We stay in the city when the plague hits, when everybody else leaves, and care for the sick. We love to our own hurt, to the amazement of the culture around us. That's always been our legacy, and that's always been the way that revival comes to a place. Is when people are willing to do that kind of thing. Not to run away from suffering and towards comfort, but always towards comfort. Excuse me, not away from suffering towards comfort, but always away from comfort towards suffering. That is the trajectory of Christian discipleship, and it's the only one. And if that is so, then we have to admit, see, this is why we're doing this this summer, we have to admit that as a culture we are ill-equipped to do Christianity well because as a culture we have an allergy to the very conditions of discipleship. Specifically, we give up too easy when it gets hard. And you know, I started to think, isn't that the key to success in anything, not just Christianity, right? The only way to increase your physical strength, for example, is to introduce pain and then to endure through it. That's the only way to be strong. And therefore, there's only one way to grow and flourish In becoming a person of deep character and personal discipline, you have to do the hard thing and stay at it. There's no other way. There's no other way. And that's what this letter that James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the churches is all about. How to endure trials and afflictions with patience. And the example that he points us to is this Old Testament story of the man named Job. And so let's look here. We're going to look at these verses here in James. They're going to... They're going to jump us back to Job, and we're going to actually jump back there a little bit around this idea of patience. And here's the three things we want to see this morning, okay? What we need is patience, so we want to define it first. What is it? In the example of Job, what is this patience that, that James keeps talking to us about? Secondly, from the story of Job itself, we see the obstacles to this living with this kind of patience. And then lastly, of course, uh, where we typically end up is then where, what is the source of it, or how then do we really find it? How do we find the spiritual resources that we need in order to live, if, if the trajectory of Christianity is away from comfort towards need. And, and, and that, that means the, that, that the very conditions of discipleship are going to not be a solution to pain, but they're actually going to be the occasion for it in our lives. How do we figure out how to, how to have the spiritual resources to live with the kind of patience that James says that we need, okay? So those three things, the definition of patience, the obstacles to it, and the source of it, all from these verses. Let's start with just this. First, what patience is. James says, look there in verses 7 
and following. Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. So this word patience, as many of you will know, is really a word that means long-suffering. It refers to a supernatural ability to endure a long-suffering with joy and hope. So I was thinking about uh, some of the people in my life that, 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 you know, this happens to. And I know it's Father's Day, but I live with a mom, and, and I, you know, and so moms of littles, okay, if it's like, you know, if it's like what it is in most families, some days it feels like they get out of bed arguing with one another and then they do it all day long. Anybody ever experienced that? And what happens is, or even moms with teenagers, like I see some moms with teenagers looking at me like, littles, what are you talking about? Teenagers, whoever. But if you have kids, there can be this sense of, you know, you, you gear yourself up for the day and then the more, by the time nap comes, you're completely wiped out and then it's this mercy in the middle of the afternoon Right, where you get a two-hour break and everybody can kind of calm down and re-energize and regroup. And then they get up and it's right at it again. And by the time dad comes home at 5 or 6 p.m., you're completely done. All the joy and the patience that you started the day with has leaked out throughout the day. It's been a long suffering. Right, you see, you see what I mean? And moms, the hope for you is that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's Spirit, is actually the supernatural ability to have just as much joy and energy at the end of the day as you do at the beginning. I have a friend whose husband has begun a mandatory 10-year prison sentence. No chance for parole. And she's committed to staying married to him. That's a long suffering. But it's possible. That's what James says. It's possible because of this fruit that the Spirit produces in us of patience. There's a second word. James says, Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. He goes on in verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So not only patient, but there's this word steadfast, and it means a long passion. So patience means a long suffering, but steadfastness means that no matter how long the suffering goes, your passion remains. It's a long passion. It refers to a supernatural ability to face setbacks and discouragements and not lose heart, not lose your courage, but remain strong and committed and in place no matter how hard the winds around you blow or how strong the current is moving. You're able to stay put and not be swept away by the things that are happening in your life. And the example that we're pointed to here is the example of Job. And if you know Job's story, or if you don't, this book of Job in the Old Testament, Job, this man we meet with is, is a man who's described at the very beginning as being blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. But then what happens is is there's this systematic dismantling of his life. He loses his wealth to raiders, and then he loses his workforce, his job, and then he loses his children all on the same day. It's this unbelievable tragedy, and yet the response of this man at the end of this unbelievable, overwhelming series of events, we're told that he falls to the ground, and he worships the Lord. It's what we read, and he says, The Lord is given, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's really this remarkable story of how this man was able to face the loss of all of these things that he held most dear to him, and then at the end, he's doing the thing that he's always done, that he didn't melt down, he didn't quit on God, he didn't curse God and die as his wife um, tempted him to do. He was full of gratitude and worship, at least at this point in the story he is. And so, James says, patience, steadfastness, like Job. This is what we're called to. But of course, the opposite of this, which he also gives us, is what he warns about here. 
And if you look there again in verses 7 through 9, be patient, establish your hearts, he says, and then he goes on, and do not grumble. Now this is what we have more experience with, not what I've already tried to describe, because too often our pain devolves into complaining and grumbling, and it's the opposite of patience. It's a very serious thing. James says that we will be judged for our grumbling, that we should not grumble with there in verse 9 because the judge is standing at the, do- at the door. So he, he connects our grumbling with the sense of the, the judgment that's coming. And so in Jude even, we're told that God is coming to execute judgment on the ungodly, which, which he describes as, here's Jude's description of these ungodly people that God is going to judge and condemn. Listen, he says, which are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters. Does that surprise anybody? It does me. Those are the people God will judge. And it's this metaphor, I think, of judgment that helps us understand why grumbling is such a serious issue. I mean, why does James connect grumbling with judgment? And I think it's because that that's what the grumbling itself is. Grumbling is a form of judgment. It seems like such a little thing, doesn't it? But when we complain... What we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We are loudmouth boasters, Job, Job says. Or excuse me, Jude says. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a little book, which is really fascinating. Uh, it's a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it has a whole section in the book that I would really uh, recommend to you. But the section is called The Evils of a Murmuring or a Complaining Spirit. Sounds like a Puritan, right? The Evils of a Murmuring Spirit. And in the section, this is his argument. He says that a murmuring heart is a rebellious heart. A, a heart that complains is a heart that is rebellious. And I remember that as a child, when my parents would tell me to do something I didn't want to do, I really had no choice. I mean, that's the reality, right? I mean, when your mom and dad tells you to do something and you don't want to do it, I, you don't have any choice. I didn't want to be punished, so I had to do it, but I didn't have to do it joyfully. I could complain about it. And the complaint was the only exercise of my sovereignty left to me. Right? I might have to do what they told me, but I could complain about it, and that was my rebellion. So grumbling is rebellion because ultimately it's a way of saying that I should be in charge of of the universe and not God. That I know better than he does how my life should be going. And the reason James says, as an example of patience and not grumbling, look to Job, is because, as we read at the end of the chapter that Jonathan read to us at the very beginning... At the end of all of his sufferings, he bows before God in worship, and then comes the voiceover. If you look in verse 22 of chapter 1, which is printed right at the beginning of your worship folder, uh, the voiceover, the, the, the narrator says, in all of this, Job did not sin or cha- charge God with wrong. And that's the truth of things. When, when instead of patient, joyful, steadfastness and endurance, instead of responding to my circumstances with, blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what they are, When I begin to complain, when I begin to grumble and argue and be frustrated and malcontent, that complaint, what it is, is it's a charge charge against God. It's It's a challenge to his sovereignty. I'm charging him with wrongdoing. I'm putting myself in the judge's seat, and I'm putting him on trial, which is what C.S. Lewis lamented was the problem with modern man, that whereas ancient peoples approached their gods as the accused person coming before the judge's bench, today the roles are reversed. Man is on the bench, God is on trial, such is our arrogance. And the more a person grumbles, the more arrogant they are. That's the teaching. And so there's a need for patience. You see this? He's saying, be patient. 
be steadfast. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't go through life that way. But second, the second thing is, is I want to turn to the book of Job itself. Since James would have us turn to it. And I want us to see the obstacle to this patience. Or the, you might say uh, the reasons that we opt for grumbling instead of staying steadfast and full of joy. And it's really this, it's that both a secular and a moralistic view of the universe lead you to this. That both secularism and moralism leave you without the spiritual resources to endure with patience. Because neither can answer the question why. James writes this, James 5.11, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You see that? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We were created to need purpose, to know why, especially in times of pain. And this is really the purpose of the book of Job. But not to give us an answer, it's really written to keep us away from pat answers that are far too simplistic to really help very much. And so, both secularism and moralism, let me, let me just kind of briefly touch on, on each of these to help you understand. I, two weeks ago, I talked a lot more about secularism, so I'm going to be very short with that, but, but you can go back and listen to that from two weeks ago if you want to. But I, I did want to point this out again, that secularism is the belief, uh, now dominant in our culture, that the material world is all there is. Remember, I, I quoted Richard Dawkins. He says uh, that at the center of reality, there's nothing more than pitiless indifference. And if there's nothing beyond the physical material world, then there's no why. That's the point. There's absolutely no why. Some people get hurt. Some people get lucky. Sometimes the best people suffer the most. And the worst people get off easy and there's no rhyme or reason or any justice. It's pure chance. And Job is written really to refute that worldview. Now, we don't have a lot of time to get into that because I have other concerns this morning. But, but that, can't, that worldview, that sense of reality cannot give you the spiritual, emotional resources that you need to endure with patience. Because we need to know. We need to get behind the, you know, the why a little bit. Secularism can't get you there. Secularism says there is no why to your suffering. The book of Job says that's absolutely wrong. But the other error that I want to spend more time with this morning is the error of moralism. And moralism says if you're suffering, something like this, okay? If you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. And this is really, this really, this this whole mindset is what the the book of Job Job is aimed at. As the story goes, he has these three friends who show up to comfort him and Truly, it was never said of anybody more than of Job. With friends like these, you know the, whole, the line? Who needs enemies? I mean, these guys come along, and they keep saying things like, Job, Job, you've obviously done something really bad here, and that's why this has happened to you, so tell God you're sorry. And if you tell him you're sorry, and if you, you know, make the sacrifices, and if you do all the right things, then it's going to be okay. And Job keeps saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I've not done anything wrong. I would repent. Uh, If I could, but I've not done anything wrong. My sin is not the cause of my suffering. And around and around and around they go for 30-something chapters all throughout the book. And the purpose of all of this theological wrangling is to debunk the very idea that if you do good, then God will bless you. And if you do bad, then he will punish you. It simply doesn't work that way. Because the world's fallen. And there's brokenness all around us. And that's the purpose this story this the purpose of this story in the Bible, to make us a people who never fall temptation to believing that if you do good, it just goes well, and if you do bad, it goes, you know, badly, because this man was upright, faithful, and steadfast, and he had, on the list of worst days, this was not a bad hair day for him, this was just 
I mean, this was a horrible, gut-wrenching, at the depths of despair kind of day. And it happened to the best of men. But you see, religious people often refer to suffering in one of two ways. Uh, The more religious you are, the more tempted you would be to either, in the midst of an experience like this, to hate yourself. And the reason religious people tend to turn to hate themselves is because they've bought into this idea. And so they think, okay, I've screwed up and I'm getting what I deserve. And so you turn to self-hatred and self-loathing and and despair. Or what happens with with a religious person is if they don't hate themselves, then they really turn and they begin to hate God. Because, see, it's, it's the opposite. They say, you know, I've been good. And I've done everything he's asked me to do. And I've not made any mistakes. And yet he's still, I've been better than all those other people. And he's still treating me this way. And I'm, I'm not being treated as well as the people that are not nearly as faithful as I am are being treated. He's not coming through. And you see what that is? That's moralism. Moralism says that the why of my circumstances is always about me, my behavior. God responds to me, which is another way of saying I can control him. If I'm good... If I'm good to him, then he'll be good to me. And so the goal of moralism is this, is to bring God under the obligation to, under obligation to my morality. Do you see that? I mean, so many of us are living, we're living the way we're living. We're living the good lives we're living just so that we can make sure God doesn't take the things away from us that we so desperately need. And at the bottom of it, what it really is, is it's a, it's a living in such a way to bring God under obligation to my morality, which is a threat to his sovereignty. I mentioned it, Elizabeth Elliot. <clears throat> she wrote a book uh, kind of late in her missionary career, uh, and the title of the book was No Graven Image, and it's a fictional account of a woman who had given up marriage and family and career and money to become a missionary, and she leaves her life and goes to South America. That's just starting to sound familiar to live uh, among a remote tribe as a linguist attempting to translate the Bible into the tribal language. And she befriends a man there who knows both English and the tribal language. And so she's his key to getting in and getting her work done. And they work together for years. But near the end of the book, this man that she's been working with gets sick. And she gives him a shot of penicillin, not knowing that he's allergic to it. And this man has an allergic reaction, and he dies. And as a result, the tribe turns against her. They, they ransack her house and throw all of her research into the river. And so, I mean, the reality is, is all of these years of hard work are destroyed. After all of that sacrifice, all of that hard work, she's a complete failure. I mean, she's just a bust. And then the story ends. And when, when Elizabeth Elliot published the book, she got hate mail from Christians Because they said things like this, God would never let something happen like that to somebody who had sacrificed that much in missionary service. And I read an interview with her in which she said, at the time she responded by by saying that these people (laughs) had obviously never read the book of Job. (laughs) Because that's the whole point of the book of Job, that when we meet Job, he's innocent and blameless, and yet all of these terrible things happen to him. But the book is also... The book, No Graven Images, was also based upon her own experience. Not only was it the experience of Job, it was the experience of Elizabeth Elliot. It was autobiographical in a sense. And here's the, the words of this character in the story and the point that, that Elizabeth Elliot was trying to make in this novel that she wrote. Uh, the lead character at the end, at the very end of the book, uh, has this spiritual kind of revelation. And here's what she says. She says, now, in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. 
For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Now, what does she mean? I think she means that our problem is that we think of God as an assistant that we can boss around and not as the Lord who has every right to command us. And if that is your conception of God, you have an idol, a graven image that you can control and manipulate, and hence the title of the book. Now, it's an interesting feature of the book of Job. Uh, that though the reader is made known the reasons for his sufferings, that's really what, if you're familiar with the story, and I don't have time to get into it all this morning, but in chapters 1 and 2, there's this council between God and Satan. God, uh, and, 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 and we get all of the inside information about what really is happening in Job's life. But when God shows up, Job, Job never knows why. God never gives Job the answers to his questions about why. We get the answer, but Job never does. And I think that's the deliberate part of the, the whole story. It's really the point of the whole story. At the very beginning, when God is talking with Satan about Job, this is what Satan says to the Lord. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job love God for no reason? And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Job's a phony. He, it looks like he's serving you, but he's not really serving you. He, he's glad to serve you because his life's going so well, but if you would bring a little suffering into his life, it'll expose him for the fraud that he really is. And that's Satan's accusation. Job doesn't really love God. He loves the gifts of God. So he says, if you take those gifts away, he'll turn on you, I, pro- I promise, I can prove it. Just take them away. And that's the occasion for Job's suffering. And it's putting a finger on the real problem that we too often love God with a mercenary love. And you know what a mercenary is, right? A mercenary is a soldier uh, or a servant who serves a king, not out of loyalty or oath, but simply for the money. His services go to the highest bidder. Who can give me the thing that I want? That's who I'm going to serve. Who can, who can write me the biggest check? That's, that's the one I'll give my, my sword to. And what we're being taught is that moralism makes us mercenaries. We do not love God for himself. We love him as the means to other things, the things we really love. And we know we have to serve him to get those things. And it's in that that we find our motivation. We serve him, but only as long as it pays off. And that is the real evil. That's the real evil of moralism. It really is evil. It turns us into mercenaries. And so if you have connections, you know, money, how does it feel? And I've walked with people, and I know how painful this is. How does it feel to begin a friendship with somebody, and then at some point you realize that this person calls you, and they're interested in you, and they stop by your house, and they want to be your friend, but you realize it's not really you they want. They're using you because they want your money, and they want your connections. I mean, girls, I don't know if any of you had an experience like this, but how does it feel to begin to date a boy and he's nice to you and he, he's sweet to you and he compliments you, but then you realize, wait, he's, he just wants to sleep with me. He's using me. We're doing this to God. Job doesn't love you, Satan says to the Lord. Take your gifts away and he will quit on you. And so God takes them away and what happens? At the end of chapter 1, we read it, he's wrong. Job's still worshiping the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so there's a principle that we uh, would do well to learn from this story. And the principle is this, that suffering is God's tool to turn us into true worshipers and not just mercenaries, so that he becomes our glory, so that he matters most to us and not the other idols that we give our hearts to that are destroying us. Tim Keller, in quoting uh, in commenting on this, he had this great 
this couple great quotes that I'll, I'll finish with here at the end. But he says, the only way to be sure you're serving God for himself alone, rather than what you're getting out of it, is that you've got to be in a condition where serving God gives you nothing. You're getting nothing out of serving God. In fact, you're getting the opposite. That's the only way to know you're serving him for himself alone. Keller goes on to point out, Satan's problem is he's cynical about love. He doesn't believe in love. He thinks we're all on the take. God, uh, but God is intent on doing something marvelous in us. He would, he would make us, as C.S. Lewis said, free lovers and servants. And that's the reason that this is such a good word. Because if you and I, if you and I could ever get to the point where God was the only thing we couldn't live without, when he was our ultimate hope and joy, then circumstances wouldn't rattle us so much. Because no matter what we come across in life, it can't take him away from us. The reason we're so afraid of suffering is because it threatens to take away the things we love. But what if the one we love the most could never be taken away? What then? What then? Well, we wouldn't be afraid anymore. What you'd find is suffering actually would drive you deeper into the source of your greatest love, your greatest comfort, your greatest joy. If you build your life on things, then suffering threatens to take those things away. But if you build your life on God, then suffering, all it can do, all suffering can do is drive you deeper into the thing you love the most. You get more of him, more joy, more comfort, more freedom. Isn't that neat? Isn't that great? Are you awake? Everybody with me? Okay. So lastly, let's just finish up with this. Then what's the source then of this patience so that we can experience that, so we can have this experience that Job had? Both secularism and moralism can't answer the why of suffering, and so they can't outfit you with the patience to endure. So how can we get the patience we need so badly? And James writes, look at there, verse verse 11 again of James 5. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose, the why of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And if I could sum up that verse in the whole book of Job uh, and, and leave us with some application this morning, it would be this. These two things. Excuse me, if you want Job's patience then first you have to see God's bigness and as a result feel your own smallness. And secondly, you have, to, you have to trust God's goodness and as a result stop asking questions. See his bigness and as a result feel your own smallness. Trust his goodness and as a result stop asking questions. You've got to see God's bigness and feel your own smallness. Remember Elizabeth Elliot's book, Why Do We Have Such a Hard Time with Suffering? Because God's too small. He's our personal assistant, not our Lord. He's just a a little household idol that we bow down and worship because we think he can give us the things that we really want. And what happens to Job throughout this story is that he finally comes to see how big God is. Job 42.5 is one of my, I love love the verse, and it's what we prayed, the elders gathered together this morning, and this is what we prayed for for all of us this morning, where Job says, "I've, I've heard of you, but now at the end of this whole thing, I've heard of you, but now... My eyes see you. And what happens next? He says, therefore I despise myself. See, when Job finally speaks, he quotes God as saying, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? When the Lord shows up in the book of Job, that's the question he asks. Those are his very first words in chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And it means this, that word counsel there means that God indeed does have a plan. There is a why. There is some purpose that is driving these things along in our lives. But the problem is, is we have a knowledge problem. 
that God has reasons for things, but we can't possibly know what these reasons are. And so if you know the book, that, that whole 38, 39, 40, 41, all of those chapters, the Lord is just, I mean, it is like, you take, you know, you, we used to say, took him out to the woodshed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, God is taking Job to the woodshed. Who are you? Where were you? When I did this and this and this and this. Have you done this? What about this? Did you do that? Oh, you're not done. What, what about this? Can you do this? I mean, it's just over and over again. And the whole point is uh, the Lord trying to humble Job into realizing that he may not know quite as much as he thinks he knows. Uh, my, my oldest son turned 15 uh, this week. And I have had a new experience as a parent. I didn't know that when your kids turned 15, they became absolute experts at everything driving. So all week long in the car has been, that's, Dad, slow down. I mean, all of a sudden, I, who have been driving twice as long as he's been alive, need to learn all the lessons that he has learned in the in this three hours that he took on the online course before he got his license. Right? And we've laughed about it. It's been so fun. And so, and so all week long. I mean, it's, really, it's sharpened me in my driving because I really had forgotten a lot of things that he's reminded me of. But it's been great. We, you know, we have, we have a major knowledge problem. It's, we are like the seven-year-old uh, kid that goes on a field trip to NASA and looks at the spaceship and turns to the scientists and says, I don't think that thing's going to fly. <laughs> what would give you that? You know, that's us. That's us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's another quote from Tim Keller. Listen to this. This is, this is so good. He says, if... If you have a God who is big enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he's not stopping your suffering, then at the same time you have a God big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for why he allows it that you couldn't possibly conceive of. Just because I can't see any good reason for why this thing is happening to me doesn't mean there isn't one. I have a knowledge problem. I'm not omniscient. Neither are you, by the way. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. (laughs) I'm not omniscient, you're not omniscient, but he is. And so Job says, I've uttered what I did not understand. Man, anybody else done that a time or two? I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You have to see God's bigness and feel your own smallness. That's the only way to wisdom, it's the only way to join patience. But then lastly, and this is to close, you have to also trust God's goodness. So as a result, you stop asking questions. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You see that, that, that verse again there in James 5? And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you know what that means? For the person who's a Christian, not a person who's secular, not a moralistic person, not a secular person, the person who's a Christian, the answer to the why Whatever it is in your life, the answer to the why is always God's compassion and mercy. God does not do good to good people and do bad to bad people. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches that all of life is grace. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Is that good news? He is not treating you in your life according to your sins. All of life is grace. All of life is mercy. He does not deal with us 
in that way. So if your faith is in Christ, you can ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? What's going on? And the answer, answer to that question will probably be something like this. I, you know, I really don't know. I can't be sure. But this one thing I do know, and this one thing I can't be sure of, and it's this, that even in this, God is compassionate. He's being merciful. For the Christian, the why, according to James, according to Job, I think, for the Christian, the why is always God's mercy, and therefore, we don't have to know the why. See that? When the why, when the, when the, when the terminus of the why is God's compassionate, merciful embrace of us, then we really don't have to know the why. So when you come to trust him, you can stop asking questions. And when you stop asking questions, then you can really rest in his care of you, even in the really hard things. And that's where the joy and the patience comes from. See, Satan comes to God and says, Job doesn't love you, he's using you. In the Garden of Eden... Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he said, God doesn't really love you. He won't let you eat of the tree. Poor you. Listen, when Satan, and I'm totally stealing all of this, so just bear with me, but when, uh, I wish these were my words and my thoughts, but they're not entirely. When Satan said bad things to God about us, even though there was some truth in them, God didn't accept it. But when Satan said bad things to us about God and there was absolutely no truth in them, we believed it wholesale. The lie of Satan is this. If you give yourself utterly and totally to God, he'll crush you. You won't be happy. You can't trust him. Run away. Run away. Run away. God doesn't really love you. And this is the struggle of our lives, isn't it? Uh, that might lay hidden underneath the busyness. That, but what happens in suffering is the busyness fades away and it brings it to the surface. This is the struggle of our lives. It is rumored that he loves us, but we're not sure. We don't know. We haven't seen it. And so the thing that we need is proof that he loves us, proof that what James says is true, that the purpose of God is always compassion and mercy. And here's the proof. Centuries later, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who was stripped naked and who cried out as Job did, why, and got no answer. And it was Jesus Christ, the true and better Job. Job felt abandoned by God because of his sins, according to his friends. But Jesus was truly abandoned by God because of our sins. God said to Jesus, If you obey me, I will crush you, I'll turn my back on you, I'll forsake you, and he did. But Jesus obeyed God, and it got him absolutely nothing. He obeyed out of perfect love for the Father, out of perfect love for you and I, and that proves, once and for all, that Satan is an absolute liar. Jesus suffered. Not so that we would not suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we could be completely sure that all of our crosses are actually mercies. And that, that is where the power for patience and steadfastness comes from. And so let's glory in that this morning, can we, as we pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would... Come now as we sing together, as we meditate on these songs that we will sing. Come now and whisper yet again to our hearts of your great love for us. Undo the lie of Satan that has wrapped its tentacles around our hearts that keep us uh, so afraid of moving towards hard things because of the inconveniences they might bring. We never stop to consider that the move towards the hard thing might be the path towards the character and the joy and the purpose and the life that we feel so empty of because we're just scared to death that if we don't 
keep absolute control of our lives, that things will spin out of control when in fact, the scripture tells us that we are in your hands and nothing can snatch us away. That we are in the hands of a good and loving father who has provided and prepared for us the very abundant life that we are trying so desperately to achieve and to find on our own. Oh, would you, Father, help us to see our smallness in light of your bigness. Help us to rest and stop asking so many questions in light of your goodness and tenderness and compassionate care of us. This is the repentance we need to do this morning. And so, Father, send the Spirit to help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. From my reading in Proverbs this week, I just came across this verse, Proverbs 17, uh, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. The glory of the child is, is, is his or her dad. That word glory means weight, significance. It means that fathers provide this pervasive presence in the lives of their children. That's a blessing to them. I, I told you, see, uh, Elizabeth Elliott died this week. I read an article she wrote about her dad, and she said, the only way I know to tell you what my dad went, meant was the most defining thing about living with my dad was when he was not there, when he went away, because of how scary things became and how uh, vacuous it felt when my dad wasn't there, because when he was, his presence just filled our family. We have a Father in heaven who can be our glory, whose presence and active blessing of our lives can give us all of the courage we need uh, to live the way he's called us to live. So dads, charge the hill with your, with your families because there's a father in heaven uh, who is prepared to bless you even before he sends you, and that's the promise of this benediction. So receive these words and then go in faith into whatever he's called you, not as those who shrink back, but as, as those who press on and are saved. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.